Let's take our copies of God's Word and turn together to the prophecy of Nahum. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. We'll look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 8 this evening. As we come to read God's holy word, would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we remember the words of Jesus that apart from him we can do nothing. And so we ask for your blessing, the filling of your spirit now, the one who breathed out this word to the prophets and apostles that same Spirit would fill us and illumine us to make us understand what He has written. Would you cause this Word to dwell richly within us, that you would prepare the soil of our hearts to receive the seed of your Word, and that you would cause it to be planted and take root and grow and bear a harvest for your glory. Use this Word of Father to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, and grow your people in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. May we delight to hear his voice speaking to us now through his word. This we ask in his name. Amen. Please stand as we hear the holy, inspired, and infallible word of our God. Nahum chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. It would be very interesting if we could take a survey of Christians all around the world today from every tradition of Christianity and ask the simple question, do you believe in the wrath of God? Of course, many professing Christians would say, no, divine wrath is a backwards doctrine. God is not a cosmic killjoy and bully. My God is a God of love. 
And many Christians would rightly say, yes, I believe in the wrath of God. It is a biblical doctrine, as this passage clearly shows. God is holy and just. He must be wrathful against us, against those who have rebelled against him. And it would be even more interesting if we could survey that second group, believers who affirmed that they did believe in the wrath of God, and ask a follow-up question. Is the wrath of God practical for you in your day-to-day life? That would be a much more difficult question to answer. Why would the doctrine of God's wrath have any practical benefit, any practical value in my daily walk with the Lord? Well, think of the final paragraph of our confession of faith, the, the Westminster Confession. It speaks of the last judgment in this way. This is Confession of Faith, chapter 33, paragraph 3. Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. Did you catch that last part? The greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. That is one of the practical benefits of knowing that Jesus Christ will condemn his enemies at the last day. Consolation of the godly in their affliction right now. That means that if you are in Christ, God knows your suffering. God has appointed a day when your suffering will be brought to an end, when it will terminate in glory. And God himself will bring your suffering to an end. He will do it himself. So if you are in Christ, the wrath of God is not a doctrine to be ashamed of, to be embarrassed of, to affirm, but not really to take delight in. It is a comforting doctrine. That's what the name Nahum means, comforter. The revelation of God's wrath against his enemies is a comfort to his people. God hates sin, and so he hates all the effects of sin. There is coming a day when Christ will bring to an end all the affliction of his people, finally and forever. And I offer the invitation at the beginning this evening. If you do not know the Lord Jesus, the wrath of God is not comfort for you. It is terror. The wrath of God, as we read of it here, is for you. But if you do know the Lord Jesus, be encouraged. The ultimate revelation of God's wrath does not result in your condemnation. It results in your salvation. And of this we get a glimpse here. Just in general about the book of Nahum, this book is about God's judgment upon the city of Nineveh. Typically when we hear about the city of Nineveh, we think of Jonah. We typically associate Nineveh with Jonah. Jonah preaches to wicked Nineveh. At least some in the city of Nineveh seem to repent, and the city is spared from God's wrath. Nahum, about a hundred years later, however, announces God's revelation of judgment upon Nineveh. So in Jonah, God reveals his grace and saves, and in Nahum, God reveals his wrath and condemns. And it is the same city that hears the gospel under Jonah's ministry and the the revelation of God's wrath under Nahum's ministry. God was merciful to Nineveh in Jonah's day, and he spared them because they repented. But at some point after Jonah's ministry, Nineveh begins again to walk in the same sins that they had walked in previously, just as, as she had done before. And about a century later, by Nahum's time, the Lord, who is slow to anger, saw fit to reveal his anger to this city. Now, don't misunderstand at this point. We're not saying that Nineveh truly repented, then she lost her salvation, and then they were condemned under Nahum. We're not saying that. No one under 
no one who is in Christ can come under the wrath of God. Once you are in Christ, you cannot be separated from Christ. We're talking here about Nineveh as a city, as a whole. We're talking about Nineveh as a type and shadow of all who rebel against the one true God and the righteous judgment of God that comes upon them if they do not repent and believe. We don't know for sure, but there, there very well may have been true believers, individuals in Nineveh who were truly saved when Jonah preached to them. But Nineveh as a whole slid back into unbelief by the time of Nahum. So Nineveh repents under Jonah's ministry, and they were spared, but they did not continue in repentance. They backslid. After decades, after almost a century of walking in their old ways as a city, God judged them under Nahum's ministry. So broadly, the book of Nahum is about God's judgment against Nineveh. But it's not all about judgment and condemnation. It is, it is as much about God's grace as we will see this evening. The city of Nineveh was the capital of the nation of Assyria. And Assyria was a superpower of evil in the ancient world. God actually used Assyria as an, instru- as an instrument of his judgment against his own people, Israel and Judah. Let's, let's turn in our Bibles now to see an example of this in 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings chapter 18. Look at verses 11 and 12. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. So again, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, And God uses Assyria as an instrument of his judgment against his own people, as a a rod of correction against his son Israel. That doesn't mean, of course, that God approves of Assyria's wickedness. It simply means that the Assyrians had distinguished themselves. They, They made themselves known as a superpower of evil in how they treated the peoples that they conquered. Assyria, when they conquered peoples in the ancient Near East, they committed acts such as mutilation, impaling people outside the captured city's walls for all to see. There were bodies in the streets, as well as other atrocities that we don't need to mention here. So Assyria was a a cruel and a bloodthirsty nation, and Nineveh, as the capital city of Assyria, is the headquarters of this wickedness, so to speak. But as as we have read, God was patient, and he sent Jonah to preach the gospel to this city, and when they repented, they were spared. But when they went back to walking in their old ways, their ways of large-scale sin by Nahum's time, about a century later, God saw fit that it was time to execute judgment. So, so Nahum is not just about Nineveh. Nahum, Nineveh is a prophetic sign of ultimate and everlasting divine judgment. Nineveh is a type and shadow of the judgment that comes upon all who rebel against the Lord Jesus the, the judgment that comes upon them on the last day. So Nahum is not merely about this city, it is about all of God's enemies conceived and born in sin because of our union with the first man, Adam, as a covenant breaker. 
This particular passage, the first eight verses of, of chapter one, really verses two through eight, they make a unit. It stands apart from the rest of the, of the book because it, it is a, a psalm, a song of praise. This section is like a psalm that really could be sung in public worship and very well may, may have been. It is a psalm praising God for his holiness, for his salvation of his people, the salvation of his people from all who oppress them. So this song of praise, as we focus on it this evening, it shows us three things about the judgment of God. First of all, this is our first point, it shows us that God's judgment is good. So Nahum begins this song of praise with who God is. Look again with me at verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. These are attributes of God, not attributes of God as he is in himself, inhabiting eternity in his triune glory. These are not God's attributes with respect to creation, which he originally made good and without sin. These are manifestations of God's character against sin. This is who God is with respect to sinners. God is holy in himself, and he manifests his holiness in wrath against his enemies. So the key to understanding this is that there is no contradiction in God being good and punishing those who live in rebellion against him. There is no contradiction between his goodness and his wrath. God's old covenant people, Judah, part of the focus of this book, his old covenant people, Judah, were being oppressed by this bloodthirsty nation and by this capital city, Nineveh. And, and there are plenty of ways just in, in, in our own day, in, in the common realm, that we see how goodness and wrath go together. Think of a, a judge. If a judge does not punish the murderer, for example, he is not a good judge. If a husband does not care for his wife, protecting her from harm, he would not be the kind of husband that Jesus Christ is to his bride. If a father does not rescue his children when they are in danger, he is not the kind of father that the heavenly father is to his children. So how much more, if we see that in, in wicked people today, how much more should a holy God be full of wrath because of sin committed against him and oppression of his own covenant people? Think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So in spite of this, this false dichotomy, the false perception of goodness that, that, are, that are held even by many professing believers, God repays his enemies because he is good, not in spite of being good. We see here that God is a jealous God. He is protective, which means that he will protect all who are in his care. God is not indifferent towards sin, just don't worry about it, we'll, we'll cover it and, and not think about it anymore. He is not powerless to do anything about it. He is not slow to do anything about it. He is not idle and careless, quite the opposite. The fact that God is angry at his enemies means that he is armed with vengeance. Psalm 7, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. And one of the many comforts for those who are united to Jesus Christ is that God is gracious. He reveals his common grace, sending rain and sunshine to the just and the unjust. 
but because God's enemies are guilty of ultimate rebellion against him, they will receive ultimate punishment. Notice there in verse 3 how there is no possibility of the guilty being cleared. Look at the first half of verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. There is no sliding scale of offense against God's law, no possibility of restoration once guilty. And we come into the world guilty because of our union with Adam, the covenant breaker. It it is useless to read this and say and try to encourage ourselves to do our best not to be guilty because we are all conceived and born dead in our sin. And there is nothing in us, nothing we can do to reverse the curse. Do you feel the weight of these words in verse 3? The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Not metaphor, not myth, not a turn of phrase. This is simple justice. A holy God must pay back sinners for their rebellion against him. But is there any hope? The only hope of, of God actually forgiving sinners is if there is a substitutionary sacrifice. Keep your finger here in Nahum 1, and let's turn to Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 3. Romans 3, focus on verse 26. Let's start at verse 23 of chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we have just read in Nahum that God will by no means clear the guilty. But whose idea was it? Was it the Father's idea, the Son's idea, the Spirit's idea? Whose idea was it to save sinners? Verse 25, it was God who put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation by his blood. It was God the Father, the one who does not by any means clear the guilty, who put forward Jesus Christ to save sinners. How can God be just and merciful? How can God not clear the guilty but be merciful? The answer is found in verse 26. Second half of verse 26. So that what? God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In order for us to be made right with God, God does not relax his standards. He does not grade on a curve. That would go against his holy character. Perhaps you've heard something similar to this, as I've once heard, that the beauty of grace is that it makes life unfair. Well, that is not what we just read. If God is not fair, that means he is not just. And if God is not just, then he is not God. No, what we've just read is that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God does not relax his justice in order to save sinners. He upholds his justice. 
and he puts the sin of his people upon Christ who paid for our sin on, in his body on the cross so that we could be forgiven. As Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him, he made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God is just putting the sin of, of his people upon Jesus Christ who fully paid for it in his death on the cross. And he is justifier because Jesus paid for our sins. We who are in Christ are justified. As Herman Ritterboss helpfully explains this, God is the one whose holy curse is executed on Christ in their place. Justice is not thrust aside. Justice is satisfied. So either we withstand God's judgment on our own, or the Lord Jesus takes it in our place. So God always will punish the guilty, either you and me personally or the Lord Jesus in our place. But verse 3 shows that, back in Nahum chapter 1, verse 3 shows that this is not the entire truth of the matter. Not only does God punish the guilty, He is slow to anger. He is long-suffering. It is true both that God's holiness does not let sin go unpunished, and that he is long-suffering. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, this is after God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, just as he was going to give Israel the, the requirements of his covenant, saying to the Israelites, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So God reveals his mercy as well as his wrath. Think of those precious words in Ezekiel 18. God says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. So God does not enjoy judgment. He derives no pleasure in executing his perfect justice in condemning sinners rightly. God is more desirous that the wicked repent. He is more desirous of that than the most fervent, zealous evangelist. His free offer of the gospel is more well-meant than our offer of it. But his holy nature, his law, require that sin be punished. It is both and, not either or. So God displays his goodness in announcing judgments upon the city of Nineveh. Well, secondly, this song of praise in Nahum 1 shows that God's judgment is devastating. Turn back to Nahum 1 and notice how, how Nahum employs imagery from creation. He speaks of the, of the whirlwind and, and the storm, showing that God's presence is greater than any natural disaster. The, 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 the results of his judgment are far more severe. Look at there at verses 4 and 5. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. So using this, this imagery of creation, showing that when God the Creator comes in judgment, He decreates. When the Creator shows up in judgment, He decreates. Notice those locations in verse 4, Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon. These are, are very fruitful areas in, in the Near East. They're fertile areas covered in forests. 
And Lebanon especially was famous for its mighty trees. The trees of Lebanon may have been something like our, our California redwood forest, skyscraping trees that are up to 100 feet wide. But they all might as well be twigs because even such an impressive place as Lebanon cannot withstand the heat of God's awful wrath when it comes. Back in Isaiah, God speaks of Lebanon being confounded and withering away, and, and it, it would confound us to read of such lush, fruitful places being withered away, but that is what happens when God appears in wrath and judgment. When God brings His judgment, it's like being caught in a worldwide earthquake. No stone is left unturned, and everything is destroyed. Notice the questions in verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Well, th those are, of course, rhetorical questions. No one is able to be condemned by God and live. But, of course, we are reminded of the Lord Jesus becoming a curse for us on the cross. Think of the words of Jesus in Luke 12, thinking forward, looking forward to his, his death on the cross. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So in other words, when I go to the cross, I will be baptized in my Father's wrath for you, coming under the, the outpouring of God's wrath in our place. That, that is what Christ did in taking the, the sins of His people upon Himself, coming under the baptism of God's wrath so that we would not have to. He stood before God's indignation so that you wouldn't have to. He endured the heat of God's anger so that you would not have to. And God the Father, as we read in Isaiah 53, it pleased Him to crush His Son, to pour out His wrath upon His Son like fire so that we, He would not pour it out on you if you are in the Lord Jesus. And it is not merely a matter of believers not receiving God's wrath, coming to some sort of neutral territory. We not only not receive, do not receive God's wrath, we receive God's favor. And the only way we stand, we can stand before the judgment seat of God in the future and pass that judgment is if we are in Christ now, having His righteousness by faith. So as we have read here, God's judgment devastates everything in its path. It destroys all to whom it comes. It is like a natural disaster, but it is far worse. Nothing in all creation, not the mighty forests, not the richly lush and fruitful areas of Bashan and Carmel, not the nations, not you or me, nothing can withstand God's terrifying judgments. And so the wrath of God announced to Nineveh here is awful and terrifying. It is destructive. That leads us most importantly, number three, to see that God's judgment is redemptive. Look at verses 7 and 8. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue His enemies into darkness. Notice the contrast, but also the, the, the complementarity there. God is not merely focused on condemning Nineveh. He is focused also to set His people free from enemy oppression. As God destroys His enemies, He saves His people. Those two things are the, the two effects of one act of judgment. One act of judgment, two effects, the condemnation of Nineveh and the salvation of Judah. 
the condemnation of God's enemies and the salvation of God's people. And we see this happen throughout Scripture. Think back to the, the flood in Noah's day and how, how Peter describes that in 2 Peter 3. Just as God cleansed the world of unrighteousness in, in a water judgment in Noah's day, so God is going to cleanse the entire cosmos of unrighteousness in a fire judgment to come. The way to escape God's judgment in Noah's day was the boat, get on board the ark. And the way to escape God's wrath in the fire judgment is to get on the ultimate ark, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has already undergone God's judgment in our place, taking our sins upon Himself on the cross. So all who trust in Him now will escape the judgment to come in the, on the last day. So in one act of judgment, in Noah's flood, God's enemies were destroyed, the world, and God's people, Noah's family, were saved. Think also of Israel's crossing the Red Sea. God led His people out of slavery in Egypt. He brought, brought them to the, the Red Sea. He parts it, and the, the people of God walk through on dry land. And as the Egyptians come to take the Israelites back into slavery in Egypt, God closes the, back the Red Sea, and God's enemies are destroyed in that water judgment. So Israel passed, and, and they, were, they were found successful in God's judgment because of God's grace. But God's enemies, the Egyptians, came under God's judgment. So in that one act, the parting of the Red Sea, God's people were saved. Israel walked through on dry land, and God's enemies were condemned, the Egyptians being drowned in the, in the Red Sea. So the same is true here. One act of judgment, two effects of salvation for God's people, and condemnation for God's enemies. So God comes and, and announces judgment to Nineveh, announcing condemnation to that city, but salvation for His people, Judah. So in this theme of hearing about God announcing judgment and that having the effect of condemnation to His enemies and salvation for His people, we should think of God revealing Himself as a warrior, perhaps a, a, a little known, not, not much attention given to this, this theme, but God throughout Scripture reveals Himself as the divine warrior, God coming on the battlefield, fighting and winning on behalf of His people, God doing for His people what they cannot do for themselves. He enters holy battle on our behalf. And, and you already know this in, in terms of, of the story of David and Goliath. Think of, think of the significance of David fighting Goliath. David steps on the battlefield to defeat the forces of evil on behalf of his people, on behalf of the people Israel. And David was a type of Christ there. He goes on behalf of the people, doing what they cannot do themselves, winning the battle, and Israel enjoying the victory. And the same thing is true here. Judah is under enemy oppression of the city of Nineveh and the country of Assyria. Judah cannot defeat Nineveh. Nineveh is a superpower of evil and of wickedness. So God comes down, steps on the battlefield on behalf of Judah, and defeats Nineveh for his people. And you may say, well, that's all well and good in the Old Testament. What does that have to, new, what does that have to do with the New Covenant church? Well, it has, it has everything to do with it. Think of how Paul speaks of the death and resurrection of Christ in Colossians 2. Verse 15, he says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. 
disarming the rulers, triumphing over them. That's the language of the divine warrior. Jesus steps onto the battlefield as it were. He defeats the enemy powers of sin and Satan and death. We, of course, were helpless to do anything, but Jesus won the battle, and we enjoy that victory. We were helpless to defeat and, and break the, the bondage of sin under, under which we were, but Jesus broke the, the bondage of sin and brought us into resurrection life. So here, God destroys Nineveh with the overflowing flood of His wrath, but in so doing, He brings His people to himself. He is their refuge, their stronghold in the day of trouble. And in closing, remember what we've been saying all along, that God's wrath is a great comfort for those who belong to Christ. Not a doctrine simply to affirm because it's what the Bible says, but not something to talk about, certainly not something to delight in. It is a comfort for those who belong to the Lord Jesus. Listen to how the old pastor Matthew Henry spoke of the comforting aspect of God's wrath. The same almighty power that is exerted for the terror and destruction of the wicked is engaged and shall be employed for the protection and satisfaction of His own people. He is able both to save and to destroy. In the day of public trouble, when God's judgments are in the earth, laying all waste, He will be a place of defense to those that by faith put themselves under His protection, those that trust in Him in the way of their duty, that live a life of dependence upon Him and devotedness to Him. He knows them. He owns them for His. He takes cognizance of their case, knows what is best for them and what course to take most effectually for their relief. They are perhaps obscure and little regarded in the world, but the Lord knows them. So there is coming a day when the suffering of God's people will terminate in glory. And if you are in Christ, take these things to heart and meditate on how the wrath of God is a comfort for you because He will make right all that is wrong for your good and His glory. In closing, summed up very well by Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 52. What comfort is it to you that Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead? That in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation but shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. Amen. And may God add his blessing to the preaching of his word.